Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. I'm absolutely delighted to have my guest, uh, Jim Dennison, on today. I want to confess and be transparent up front. I have had the pleasure of serving on Jim's board for, uh, gosh, over 10 years now, I think it has been. And uh, I'm really grateful for that opportunity to serve. Um, but I don't want anybody to think that I'm not going to try and do what, what I can humbly to uh, have a good conversation and, and try and challenge some of the thinking that we've had today. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, uh, for those of you who like uh, this content, please like, share, and subscribe, or any of the three. Uh, we welcome your support. Um, Jim, I'm going to jump right into it. When we started with this, when I started this podcast, you were my first guest in part because you had just come out with a book on what civil discourse really meant and the absence of civil discourse in our society and the fact that that uh, the absence of civil discourse had quantifiable adverse consequences. Mm-hmm. And so in the course of that conversation, we defined civil discourse as having three elements. And the three elements were, one, uh, the right to have, uh, the, the right to speak your mind with impunity So in this forum. Uh, mm-hmm. Two, uh, the obligation to experience empathy for the other person's perspective. And three, to genuinely get to the other side and hopefully come up with a better solution or at least progress towards a better solution. So those, those are the three elements. We're going to continue. We've continued that this year, this is the, uh, the 38th episode, I think it is of, uh, of the podcast. And so we're going to continue that tradition. Um, I want to kind of jump in. You've got your, your bona fides uh, are longer than my resume. So <laughs> we're going to just uh, jump right in if we can. Uh, you just came out with a new book called The Coming Tsunami. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like you to kind of just briefly talk about what motivated you to write this book, uh, what catalyzed or inspired you to, uh, to go off and go spend the time to write it, but also what, what is the book trying to cover? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Uh, thanks for the privilege of being back on with you today and for all you're doing. Uh, I've been such uh, uh, just so blessed to be in this relationship with you over this decade plus, and so glad to be a fellow traveler and a partner with you on the journey. And I don't know anybody that could host civil discourse more effectively than you could, my friend. So I'm just glad to be back and so glad you're doing what you're doing and excited to do it with you. So yeah, in terms of the book, really the assertion of the book is something I would not have said even six months ago. And that is that I believe Christ followers in America are facing a rising tide of cultural opposition position unprecedented in American history. Now, I know that sounds like clickbait. That sounds like rhetoric to sell books. I just have to tell you, I have not said those words until six months ago. I'm not claiming that we're in communist China. I'm not claiming we're in North Korea or parts of the Muslim world, but I am saying that there's a rising tide of opposition to biblical truth, to biblical morality that we have not seen before in American history. Good news is it's always too soon to give up on God. And if we understand what's happening, then I believe we can be used by God to turn the tide for the sake of our country and for the sake of our witness in our culture. So we use this model of a tsunami, a tidal wave you can see caused by underwater earthquakes that you can't see. I'm aware that tsunamis are caused by other factors as well, but 80% of the time they're underwater earthquakes. So in the book, I identify four underwater cultural earthquakes. And with each one, we look at ways that we can respond to them in biblical and redemptive ways, seeking to speak the truth in love and be catalysts for the kind of spiritual awakening our culture needs today. So that's the burden of the book and the premise of it as well. So can you kind of we, I've spent some time earlier this year thinking through and discussing with others. This is the kind of nerd that I am. Uh, the impact of what happened in Athens and Rome, the impact mm-hmm. of what happened and the, the kind of the trajectory through the French Revolution, mm-hmm. um, the impact of what happened in the U.S. Civil, uh, civil uh, Revolution, or Civil War, I'm sorry. And then um, does can I can you put this in con, in contextual history or in, in the context over history? I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think Oz Guinness really has something here when he says we're really right now struggling between two revolutions, the American and the French. So the American 1776 has in it a Judeo-Christian context. You have Thomas Jefferson saying that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. You have John Adams saying our constitution was intended for a moral and religious people and is wholly unsuited to the governance of any other. There's this argument that democracy requires consensual morality, and in the founder's mind anyway, that consensual morality was rooted in a consensual religious worldview not claiming they were all Christians as we would identify Christians at all, but nonetheless, there was a consensual Judeo-Christian sense of morality. By contrast, 1789, the French Revolution is secular in its ideology and in its intent. They're literally making churches into what they called halls of reason. They're seeking to develop a revolution entirely, exclusively, intentionally on secularistic anti religious grounds, in their context, more anti-Catholic perhaps than anything, but nonetheless anti-religious grounds. And what we see today is really a battle between those two. The 1789, you could take back to Athens, you could take back to the beginnings of a Greco-Roman world in which, if you had a belief in the gods, there was a transactional religion, placed a sacrifice on the altar so, so the god would bless your crops. You wouldn't have a personal relationship with those gods. You didn't want a relationship with those gods on Mount Olympus as, as, um, as sinful, we would say, as they certainly could be, as capricious as they could be. You didn't really think of your religion as governing your life. It was just bills you paid in order to receive benefits from the gods that you happen perhaps on some conventional wisdom to believe in. And so really at the beginning of Western Judeo-Christian uh, ideology, you could say our worldview, there is this kind of sacred versus secular, Sunday versus Monday, spiritual versus secular kind of idea. They get it from Plato, who got it from Pythagoras, who got it from the Orphic cult, but it's nonetheless this kind of built-in, baked-in Sunday versus Monday, spiritual versus secular, that's really in many ways embodied by that 1789 French. And that's a lot of the collision we're facing today is between those who believe that America needs to have a consensual morality built on a consensual kind of religious worldview versus those that are convinced that what I just said is more damaging to our future than helpful. That religion flies planes into buildings and causes 9-11s and clergy abuse scandals. And so religion spends money on buildings instead of people in heaven instead of earth. And we've outgrown religion now. And authenticity is the path to flourishing. And now religion is seen as dangerous as opposed to helpful. That's the fourth chapter of the book, The Coming Tsunami. And in some ways, I think it may be the most important of all. Okay, so a lot of content right there in a couple of paragraphs. Um, but so, so let me just challenge this, uh, this hierarchy of logic, um, or, or uh, maybe it's not hierarchy of logic, maybe it's hierarchy of, of uh, paradigm. So it seems to me, I'm just going to throw this out there as an idea that, um, first of all, as, as we've discussed in the past, I, I like this phrase that I've used in the past, uh, science merely narrows the chasm over which faith must bridge. So the idea is that more we learn about the natural world through scientific method, then the more we understand God's plan. Hmm. It doesn't mean we'll ever understand it fully. But we so we simply narrow the chasm. Um, but we'll never under but so we'll never understand it fully, but we'll understand it better over time, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not a linear progression, meaning we don't always go up and to the right. We uh, we have setbacks, we have errors, we have because that's the nature of man, we're fallible. Um, and smart scientists uh, recognize that. Uh, there's not really such a thing as failure. It's just meaning learning how it didn't work, mm -hmm. right? That's to kind of paraphrase uh, a great scientist in the past. So it seems to me in the past, what's happened is we've had this hierarchy, which was faith, science, and then government. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you were led by faith and that, you know, we see that all over the constitution, the declaration of independence, um, the, the rights that were God granted to man, and invested in man, and then man gave the rights to government. So we were intentionally governed. We we uh, subscribed to government. We uh, endowed government, but it wasn't the way the other way around. Am I mistaken in asserting that that paradigm has shifted, where it's now 
uh, and this is the concept of secular faith you write about you write about in chapter four, starting on page 43, <laughs> to indicate I've read it. Um, but it seems to me that we, we're now at, at government is first, science is second, and faith is, you know, third or worse. Mm-hmm. Is, is, that, is that fair to say? Have I, have I thought about that correctly? I think you absolutely have, yeah. So back in the early part of the 20th century, there was a group called Logical Positivists, Logical Positivism, uh, a fellow named Auguste Comte, C-O-M-T-E, was one of the foremost thinkers in this movement, who in, in terms very similar to what you're describing right now, said that humanity has moved through three phases, started with the religious phase, this kind of superstitious, mythological sort of phase, then from there we moved to the aesthetic phase, which is where we're now we're measuring the world through what we can feel through our own experiences, through our own emotions. And he wants us to move to a third phase, a positivistic phase, where we will see the world through scientific, mathematical eyes and terms and prisms and so forth. And out of that comes the idea that truth to be, well, a meaningful statement anyway, must be capable of verification, either uh, logically or practically. Well, that verification principle can't be verified by its own terms. It fails its own test, and logical positivism eventually goes away. But what's left over from it is what you're describing right now. You hear it in Richard Dawkins, who says, we've gotten rid of every religion but one. We just have one more to go, who says religion is a virus and the software of humanity that must be expunged. You get it in uh, Christopher Hitchens' best-selling book, God is Not Great, subtitled How Religion Poisons Everything. You and I know that religion has no ontological value, meaning it's a category. It's like leaves. What color are leaves? Well, there's oak leaves and there are pecan leaves. It's different leaves, right? Different religions. So I was talking to Chris Fritchens about that prior to a panel discussion we were on some years ago. And I said, you know, it's interesting, your subtitle, how religion poisons everything. If you'd said religion, you'd be talking about Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or whatever. But by saying religion, you're claiming that every religion of every kind of every manifestation across all of history poisons everything. He said, that's exactly what I'm claiming. That's exactly the idea. So out of positivism and the scientific movement in our country, we've gotten to exactly the place now where faith is in third place. Faith is superstitious. Faith is mythological. The percentage of Americans who say the Bible is myth has doubled in the last 20 years. There's this conventional wisdom. It's completely wrong, but it's nonetheless this conventional wisdom that most of our wars are caused by religion, even though far more people were killed by atheistic, communistic means in the 20th century than religious means. Nonetheless, that's a conventional wisdom. So we want to get past this religious idea to a scientism where the, the scientists with their white robes are really the priests of the day, where they can solve all of our problems. And then ultimately, what we want is a governmental structure that will uh, harvest the results of scientific means and scientific advances, and then disperse them for all of us in ways that are hoped to be equitable. Was a day when the government depended on the consent of the people. Now, it's exactly the reverse. And now there's this sense that we now need this governmental structure as the means of saving us from ourselves and bringing to us the benefits of the scientific revolution. And faith, of course, is a leftover, outdated impediment to everything I just said. I don't think that's an overstatement to say that really is the structure in which a lot of our so-called civil or uncivil discourse is happening today. So brings up a couple of points. Uh, one of the things is we put in you know, government when it gets around to doing so, usually because it's reactive and necessarily so, um, then leads to uh, rules and regulations being put in place, which are once put in place, very difficult to remove. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're seeing that today with regard to uh, issues with regard to the, the disease that's running around. And the obligation either to put on masks or to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's now a CDC recognition that vaccination status is important, but uh, that natural immunity is more powerful mm-hmm. than the vaccination uh, by itself. And uh, vaccination plus immunity is stronger yet again, meaning that if you've had the disease and you've been vaccinated, then you're stronger than you are if you've only had one of the two. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's a recognition now by uh, Johns Hopkins study that says uh, that the lockdowns and the, and the mandates are have not been effective, right. and we can kind of look to, to science to prove that out. 
But at the same time, government is still mandating masks and vaccinations. And, sometimes, mm-hmm. and there's now a movement in California that would allow 12-year-olds to get vaccinated without parental consent mm-hmm. uh, and not, not even tell their parents about it. So there's a, a challenge there. Um, so it seems to me that this is a flavor of secular faith. Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm putting my faith in government as opposed to something else. Is that a fair characterization? I'm afraid it is. We're in such a complex day now when there's so little of the world that I really understand that I really want to trust somebody beyond me that understands what I don't. My life is so complex. I have so much to deal with. I'm trying to keep my marriage together and raise my kids and get along in this very, very complex world. So I really want to outsource all the decisions that I don't have to make, especially when those decisions require a level of expertise I don't have. I, for instance, have no idea how the technology works by which we're having this conversation right now. And if somebody wants to come along and, for instance, ask questions about censoring um, social media for the common good or not for the common good, and wants to get into the weeds of what that looks like and how that works, I can't follow that argument very far. So I just want to trust somebody else with that. You know, it's always been human nature to do that. We've always wanted to outsource hard decisions to somebody else, always wanted to believe in those that were fighting battles we didn't therefore have to fight. But that's been exacerbated, I would say, as the world's become more complex. And as people have figured out, this is how you get ahead is by that very formula. So, Todd, when we started this ministry back in 2009, I was talking to a good friend of mine who'd been involved in not-for-profit space for a long time and asking him for some advice about how to do this. He asked, well, how is this going to be funded? I said, well, it'll be donor-based. So he, he, then he asked, well, who's your enemy? And I said, well, what do you mean? And then he said, not facetiously, although it didn't apply to us, I trust, I hope. He said, to raise money, you do three things. First, you convince people they have an enemy. Second, you convince them they can't defeat their enemy. Third, you convince them you will defeat their enemy if they'll give you money or vote for you or whatever it is. Isn't that happening in our culture, huh? And so even more than the complexity of the world, it's all the folk that want to maximize that complexity, that want to make it sound even worse than it is, perhaps, that want to even make the demons bigger and stronger and make the other side even more dangerous so that then you will elect them or give money to them or whatever it is they want you to do. So or the watch them on TV. Battle, you don't have to. Yeah, or watch them on TV, or watch them on TV. Watch them on TV. Yeah, whatever it is I want you to do, that's how the psychology works in a culture that's more fearsome than maybe it's ever been. So that's a big issue. That's a big, big uh, structural idea, which is uh, that part of this relates not only to creating your creating an, an enemy against whom we must be necessarily collectively bound to fight, mm-hmm. but in addition to that, that we're going to outsource complex decision-making mm-hmm. because we just don't have the intellectual energy to go tra- tackle it. So we're not, right. we're, we're not, um, we're not obligated ourselves to go do the homework. And that seems to be at the center, right, really at the core of the cultural divide we're experiencing right now, where people, lot, some people are saying, look, I'm going to go do my homework myself and rely on myself to mm-hmm. go figure this out to the best of my abilities. And others saying, no, I'm the only one who can help you understand this. I'm the only one who can help you how to deal with it. And you need to rely on me in order to do that. Or people are being put up for that position. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. But in in a sense, one could argue that uh, faith is different because what faith does is it gives you the building blocks to make the decision, but doesn't give you the decision. Mm. Right. In other words, the New Testament is, lo- is far less rules-oriented than the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, I humbly submit that. So uh, if you believe that, then that means that what the New Testament is all about is values. Mm-hmm. It's about the principles. Right. And therefore, we can't, you know, what, 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 uh, what is being done in, in that context is simply providing you with the tools to make good decisions but not telling you what those decisions ought to be, leaving that to free will. Now, that's, that's fundamentally different from what's going on today in the secular faith context. Is that correct? Well, it absolutely is. And the big category that's being left out on the other side, of course, is the Holy Spirit. So I don't mean this 
to be pejorative what I'm about to say in the context of Catholic versus Protestant. Some of my best friends are Catholic priests. I'm so grateful for all the ways the Catholic Church has made such a contribution to our society. But back at the early beginnings of what we think of as Catholicism, there emerges this idea that God gave the Bible through the church, so the church is the means by which the Bible is to be interpreted. By that, we mean through the creeds and dogmas of the church and ultimately papal statements ex cathedra. So the analogy would be to you as an attorney. I certainly want you defending me in court because you understand the Constitution. You've been to law school. You know how to interpret it professionally in a way that I don't. If I'm needing back surgery, I certainly want someone who's been to medical school and has expertise that I don't have. Well, that's the same thinking that gets brought over to this Catholic idea that the Bible is intended to be interpreted through the prism of teaching, of church teaching. Then these Protestants come along in the 16th century, and they have the sola scriptura idea, only the Bible. And what they would say, and what I would say is, what's being left out is the fact that the Holy Spirit, who inspired the text, will also teach me how to interpret it. Now, still want to do that in accountability, still want to do that within communities, still want to learn from the traditions and the theological contributions of the broader family of faith, but the Holy Spirit will enable me to do what in my own intellect I couldn't do without going to law school or without going to medical school. The Holy Spirit will give me leadership and guidance to enable me to move forward as God would direct me within the values that the New Testament teaches. That's foundationally, fundamentally opposed to, and very many contradictory to, a secular ideology, which doesn't obviously have any category for the Holy Spirit, no category for God helping us, for God leading us, for God empowering us and inspiring us. So now it's you on your own. Martin Heidegger says you're an actor on a stage with no script, audience or director, no past, no future. Courage is to face life as it is. So in that world, of course, I'm going to outsource everything I can't figure out myself to somebody who theoretically can do it better than I can. And then we're going to take the additional step of them wanting me, insisting that I do that. Now you're at a place where doctors insist that you don't do your own knee surgery, where attorneys insist you don't represent yourself in court because they know better than you what's best for you. And they know that they have expertise you don't have. The whole thing leaves out the Holy Spirit, leaves the category of God in us, leading God, uh, leading us to the future God intends for us. That's the category that the Bible brings to us. So the Spirit enables us to live by the values, as you said, of Scripture to God's best for our lives and our future. So you bring new light into a, a whole new idea that's time-honored. Uh, it's not when I say a whole new idea, it's a, a phrase that was uh, developed a long time ago. It said that the Senate was designed, the U.S. Senate was designed to be a slow-moving deliberative body because any passing of any law was necessarily an abridgment of a personal freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would submit that in addition to the word personal, words personal freedom should be and responsibility, mm -hmm. right? So you have the responsibility to do your own homework and to be as learned as you can about topics. Um, you can elect to outsource if you want, which is what empowers, if enough people elect to outsource and have a rule made, then that's what gets, gives rise to the passage of a law. Mm -hmm. But it shouldn't be where we're told, especially by unelected officials, mm -hmm what um what we need to do so we kind of going back we've got we kind of identified this concept of the of the principles leading to decision making that we employ ourselves uh which then should the, uh, inform the way we interact and regard and empower government um but the, there's a thin read where a thin read in that some of these arguments could be made on either side right in other words Let's imagine we go back and we talk about uh, how the limitations of the empirical method, mm -hmm. right? Now we're still trying to figure it out. We make mistakes. Um, if you then by analogy say that the limitations of the empirical method, just as they uh, fail to completely uncover the natural uh, workings of the universe, couldn't you also say that an issue with language is that its imperfect nature limits our ability to express things and to form our own thing, our own thinking about it, because our, our thinking is manifested in, in, uh, in words. Wouldn't that then also limit our ability to then 
articulate what we see as objective truth versus subjective mm-hmm. truth or morality? Well, it certainly does. That's really the challenge here. Now we're back to Immanuel Kant in the 18th century and the idea that your mind interprets your senses and the result is knowledge for you. Well, your mind isn't mine, your senses aren't mine, so there can be no such thing as absolute truth. That's the first chapter of the book. Kant says you can't know the thing in itself. Well, there's some truth in that, not only in the context by which my senses aren't yours, my thinking isn't exactly yours, but also the words by which I communicate what I believe truth to be are themselves contextually driven. The later Wittgenstein spoke of language gains. If I say the ranger stole a base, that means a completely different thing at the ballpark in Arlington than it means on the island of Cuba, right? Completely different thing. And so the language, because it's contextually driven and my context may not be yours, you may not even know my context. I may not know your context. Then not only is my experience of the world limited to my own finite fallen mind, interpreting my finite fallen senses, but then the way I express that to the world is itself on a level subject driven as well. So that's the argument that leads us to a post-truth culture, to a claim that all truth is personal, individual, and subjective. Now, the other side of that would make the argument, and this is a very complex philosophical discussion, but to make the argument that while, yes, my mind and my senses are limited, I nonetheless am experiencing an objective reality that is objectively there regardless of my experience of it. There is an objective truth. There is an objective world. There is an objective tree outside the window that I'm looking at as I'm speaking to you. Now, the way I describe it to you and the way you might describe it to me could look different. If one of us is colorblind, we're going to experience it sensorily differently. But that doesn't mean there's not a tree. That doesn't mean there's not an objective tree we can seek to understand. And that's what's being lost by the post-truth culture that's given up any concept of an objective truth that we could aspire to understand and communicate. So the limitations of either the empirical method or language don't um, eliminate or even mitigate the existence of the objective truth, the tree outside your window. That would be the uh, but instead, But instead limit our ability to either measure or to articulate that. Which and means humility diff- is important. That's why you want a scientific method, where you want to continue to reproduce your results, and then you want others to be able to reproduce them. You want to be able to move forward through consensual process here, all of that, because we understand that all of us are individually finite and flawed. I would never suggest anything to the contrary, even though I'm arguing that what I'm trying to, to understand exists. It is there. The world is there. It's objectively there. And my attempt to understand it, communicate it, while finite and flawed and has to be held with humility, is nonetheless one piece of it. You and I are both blind people looking at different parts of an elephant. I'm looking, I'm feeling the leg and it feels like a tree trunk. You're feeling the, the trunk and it feels like a fire hose. We're both describing the same thing from very different perspectives, but that doesn't mean the elephant doesn't exist. Okay, so we've, we've just, in, in the first few minutes here, we've just unpacked um, the concepts of principles and decision-making and hierarchies and, and organizational principles um, and, the, and the fact the fact, I mean, and the fact that to a large extent, these things operate in an interlocking system mm-hmm. that we deal with culturally and, uh, and in community with one another uh, to make our nation. So now let's go one step towards the tactical, one more step to the tactical, where we're bridging from the philosophical and the, and the spiritual down to, uh, I'll call it more mechanical, mm-hmm. uh, and how, how this informs uh, one of the topics I'm focused on, re- have been focused on recently, healthcare. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at things like, the how does this play with regard to um, how we're thinking about gender reassignment, how we're thinking about um, genetic testing, how we're thinking about personalized medicine, how we're thinking about uh, selection uh, and the implications of that. How do how do I, I think we can we can safely say that what we've teed up thus far certainly impacts those things. You've written about them, so mm-hmm. to, and you've been, you are in fact a a medical ethicist. It's one of your job titles. So, mm-hmm. how do you look at those issues 
especially as more science comes out and we're facing this cultural wave simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a massive issue. And I don't know that we could have a more practical application of our conversation to this point than the one that you've led us to. So I appreciate your thinking in those terms, moving in that direction. Your expertise in the medical space obviously gives you the capacity to understand the severity of the issue as well. Uh, we can pick genomics as one example. If we're going to live in a true post-truth culture where truth is tolerance, essentially, ultimately, then we have to tolerate everything that doesn't hurt. I have to tolerate anything you do that doesn't hurt me. Problem being, how do we start deciding what hurts me? For example, let's say we can get to a place, and we already had a Chinese doctor a couple of years ago doing this, where he manipulated DNA theoretically within embryos, theoretically to produce children, twin girls in this case, who would not be able to get AIDS. At least that was what he was attempting to do. We don't know if he was successful or not, but that was the attempt. Well, now he's created germline engineering, meaning that those girls, if they reproduce, will pass on to their um, descendants the altered DNA that he created in the lab in their embryos. Now that affects me. That affects my kids. That affects my grandkids. If he introduces something to the human condition that's going to be perpetrated down into posterity, that affects all of us. So now I have to step back and say, well, now, wait a minute. You want me to tolerate anything you do unless it hurts me? That just hurt me. Now, he could argue, no, it didn't. I'm in China. You're in the United States. You're going to die before these kids probably have kids or grandkids. What difference does it make? Now we're having a philosophical argument over who, what hurts who. And yet in the postmodern context where truth, where tolerance is not only saying you have the right to be wrong, but there is no wrong. That's what the new tolerance means. And in that context, you can do anything that doesn't hurt me. Who gets to decide what hurts me? In the space of genomics, in the space of biomedical engineering, in the space of enforced abortion or euthanasia. Let's see if we get to a place, Todd. Right now, one-fifth of Americans have access to physician-assisted death or euthanasia, we could call it. Let's say that becomes a civil right on a national level. Let's just say that happens like abortion in 1973 or same-sex marriage in 2015. Let's say that the doctors at Baylor, Scott, and White Healthcare are then required to assist patients in seeking their own death, even in violation of their personal moral standards. Let's just say that the Equality Act would do that relative to LGBTQ issues. Let's say the same thing happens in that context. Now, someone could come along and say, well, that doesn't hurt me. I'm not choosing to die through physician-assisted means. What about my spouse? What about my kids? What about a place as in the Netherlands where right now, as I understand, it's being debated whether children need to seek their parents' permission before seeking to end their lives? Well, that certainly affects me if my kids and my grandkids can choose to end their lives without my knowledge or permission through physician-assisted means. And so, of course, that's hurting me, and therefore tolerance should stop. The other side will, will say, no, you don't have to choose this if you don't want. So therefore, you have to be tolerant. If tolerance is the new truth, capital T tolerance, what I'm trying to illustrate is, in the context of medical application, deciding what is who was hurt by what breaks down very quickly. And it simply doesn't work as a means of deciding what medical advances should be tolerated and which ones shouldn't. When John Don says no man is an island, he was actually speaking the truth in medical terms as well as in social and cultural. I uh, was doing some research uh, in parallel with the movement of the OSHA mandate through the court system and mm -hmm. in anticipation of the Supreme Court ruling because that's the nerd that I am again. And um, I came across uh, a stunning opinion from Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who is probably one of the most renowned jurists that the United States has ever had. Certainly. And I was really shocked both by the, by, by the language of the day, because it was written in 1927, uh, but then also the, the findings so the question at the time was whether or not something could be forced by the federal uh, government. And the answer was no, the rights and the obligations related to the health and safety of a state's citizens and residents are left as a matter to the state, not the mm. federal government. Mm. And to, to underscore this, the question at hand, uh, shockingly, was 
the right of the state to forcibly sterilize yes. a woman who is in a mental health institution mm -hmm. and who had been put there by her husband. Mm -hmm. Now, it was not uncommon at that time for affluent husbands to put their wives into uh, mental institutions if they weren't getting along for one reason or another, which is a horrific thing. Yeah. But what Justice Holmes said was, yes, the state has a largely unfettered right to uh, control the, the health and welfare mm -hmm. of its of its yeah. residents and its citizens, including the sterilization of women, because this woman was the third woman in her lineage who had been committed to an institution. And he actually used the word in the opinion that she was, quote, an imbecile, end quote, mm -hmm. and that if she was not sterilized, that the state could possibly become, quote, overrun with imbeciles, mm -hmm. end quote. The language today is so so offensive, uh, but the idea is also is also pretty terrifying that the state mm -hmm. would have the right to go off and do that. Mm -hmm. So, is this not an extreme version of a legal opinion that does exactly what you're warning us uh, warning us against? Mm -hmm. Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah, you're talking about the eugenics movement that in the early part of the 20th century was one of our most horrific chapters, something that Amer most Americans aren't even aware of today. Uh, one of Charles Darwin's relatives was one of the foremost proponents of applying Darwinian evolutionary principles to eugenics. That's where you get the Tuskegee Institute, horrific experiments with syphilis, that's where you get. And you've spoken a great deal about this time, I'm so glad you have, the degree to which African Americans still distrust American medicine, and they have good reason looking back to the history by which so many African-Americans have been so abused by the medical system of the, of the country and the idea that we can do what's best. It's a utilitarian argument, the greatest good for the greatest number, ultimately. And the, I guess that works if you get to decide what the greatest good is and you get to decide what the greatest number is. The Odyssey or theocracy works if you get to be Theo, you know. But the idea behind that is still what we're, it's where we find ourselves today. It's 73, Roe v. Wade, discovering a right to abortion in the 14th Amendment, and therefore removing the state's rights to legislate these things and making this a federal mandate. 2015 with Obergefell, uh, Supreme Court uh, Justice Roberts said this language works perfectly for polygamy, and now we're moving toward polygamy. Three uh, municipalities in the United States have already legalized polygamy and so-called polyamory. Then we'll get to consensual marriage, where people of any age, consensual relationship can marry, and even zoophilia, which is the celebration of sexual relationships between people and animals. There was a uh, award-winning documentary a couple of years ago entitled Dolphin Lover. New Yorker had a 6,400-word glowing article extolling a man who has a sexual relationship with a horse. Because again, tolerance means that nothing can be wrong. And we're going to enforce that on the culture because we know better than you do. We now know that there is no such thing as objective truth, no such thing as objective morality. We now know that tolerance, meaning there can be no wrong behavior, is what's best for all of us. That's authenticity is the path to flourishing. And we're going to impose that on you. It won't be forced sterilization, but it will be, by way of horrific metaphor or analogy, it will be a kind of imposing of this radical secular ideology with no appeal to religious freedom. And if you think I'm making all that up, that's the Equality Act, the so-called Equality Act that's passed the House twice. That's before the Senate. President Biden said he would sign it. It absolutely forbids any appeal to the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It, as you know, it amends the 1964 Civil Rights Act to forbid discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, but with no appeal to religious freedom. What it would mean in principle, Todd, if that became a law, and let's say we don't change here at Denison Ministries our standards as regards biblical morality that we expect of our employees. And let's say we have an employee that marries someone of the same gender, and we release them from their employment on that basis, and they file a lawsuit, and the judge issues an injunction. If we don't obey the injunction, I go to jail. That's the so-called Equality Act. How that's not an imposition of an external secular ideology in a way that's metaphorically what you're referencing, I don't know how that's not that. 
And uh, we are a couple of votes in the Senate or removing the filibuster for this from that becoming a law. So all that to say, this is not hyperbole. This is not back to my friend, create an enemy you can't defeat so that you'll give me money. This is, this is reality. This is one of the senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee last year, speaking in favor of the Equality Act, saying that our appeal to religious freedom, does what he would call be homophobic, is just like the KKK burning crosses on lawns. He made that exact analogy from my unwillingness to do a same-sex wedding in his mind and claiming religious freedom protection, First Amendment protection, is in his mind exactly the same thing as if I wanted First Amendment protection to burn a cross in a lawn, said a senator. Yeah, it's uh, pretty shocking how, you know, we just have lost our understanding of history so completely. This is what worries me about a lot of things that are going on in the education movement right now, but just completely lost our sense of history and, you know, how we created the contract of marriage uh, in in its enforcement within government as something that was done specifically because the government is not supposed to intervene into a contract between two private parties unless there's a compelling public policy reason to do exactly. so. Exactly. And what's interesting is that nobody really got a hold of that and really fully understood it. And so the, you know, a lot of these things have passed, uh, but uh, it's, it's an unfortunate circumstance that just, and it's not going to get turned around now. Once it's in law, it's hard to take away, as we've said. The other thing that seems to be happening is we're bending some very time-honored principles around um, adolescence and, and youth and adulthood that are troublesome. So, for example, now there is a law pending right, uh, pending right now in California where a, uh, a child of 12 years old or older now, by law, you're deemed a child by law, meaning you can't, for example, be compelled to enforce a contract with that person because by law, you don't have the legal capacity to enter into a contract. But, by con but now what the, they're saying in California, if this law passes, is that a 12-year-old would have the right to get access to certain medical procedures, ranging from vaccination to other things, without their parental consent. Mm -hmm. In Virginia, there was something pending that said you could change your name mm -hmm. without your parents' consent. And the school system didn't need to tell the parents. Mm -hmm. So when you, the, the legal implications of that are just yeah, significant. So as you're thinking through this, um, we, we have on the other side of the, of the equation, in some instances, some of this stuff can be used for good. So you point out in your book, for example, uh, the issue around Tay-Sachs mm -hmm. and the fact that genetic engineering could eliminate uh, the existence of Tay-Sachs, which would mm -hmm. um, you know, prevent the loss of life of a lot of Jewish children. How do, we, how do we allow the good to manifest without succumbing to all of the bad or vice versa? Now, that's really the practical question. And Tay-Sachs is a great example of that. Uh, as we describe in the book, there's a group in New York called uh, Dor Yashom, he's Community of the Righteous. So when it was discovered that, well, Tay-Sachs is a hearable disease that causes death usually by the age of four. It's especially predominant in the Jewish community. And so it was discovered that through genetic testing, it's possible to discover who are carriers for that disease. And in this Jewish community, they've been urging individuals, couples to get tested to see whether they are carriers of Tay-Sachs prior to getting married. And then if they're both carriers, and therefore there's a heightened possibility that their child would inherit Tay-Sachs, they're urged if they get married not to have biological children, to adopt children instead. And they've seen the incidence of Tay-Sachs absolutely plummet. Now they're doing the same thing with spina bifida, the same thing with uh, muscular dystrophy. Uh, there's a whole variety of heritable diseases for which genetic markers or carriers can be detected ahead of time. What makes that different is no one's imposing that. No one's coming forward and saying, if you are Jewish, and now we have to define what we mean by Jewish, or we could just say whoever you are, you must get carrier screening prior to getting married, not only for Tay-Sachs or Fragile X or whatever the condition might be, for, but for a whole host of hundreds, if not thousands of heritable diseases, you must do that, both of you. And if both of you are found to be recessive carriers, you must not be allowed to have biological. Now you're back to Judge Justice Holmes again. 
Now we're back to a kind of eugenics sort of forced sterilization again. What we have here is a Jewish community encouraging, but not mandating, not requiring. That's the difference. That's really the American way. The American way has always been around community. It's part of the reason the 13 states of the United States, as you know, were seen to be so independent that if you look at the Constitution, the word states is capitalized, united is not. It's been said that prior to the Civil War, people would say the United States are. After the Civil War, they would say the United States is. There was this sense that Georgia and New York are so different that states' rights ought to predominate. And as you know, federal rights ought to prevail only where states' rights do not, and only where they had been on some level outsourced to the federal for things like an army, for things like a treasury, things that can be better done collectively. So part of the American experiment was to get governance as low to the ground as possible. The old Tip O'Neill statement that all politics are local. The idea that we want school boards deciding what our kids ought to be taught in a local context, not even a state, much less a national context, et cetera. But boy, hasn't that shifted, especially since the Great Depression, especially, quite frankly, since the FDR administration and the New Deal and the federalizing of so much of what used to be state and local. And now the whole impulse, back to your point where we started the conversation, now the whole psychology has turned. And now we're at a place where we're outsourcing our own welfare to the federal, to the experts, as they would think of themselves and as we would think of them. Boy, that wouldn't be what the founders would have understood America's idea to be. Well, what I I think is interesting, and I think this is a, a failure of leadership, is in the past, what would have happened is medical research medical researchers would have given information and output and studies and results and empirical data to policymakers who would then make decisions around policy that then uh, we would we would likely have an obligation to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, in this instance, what happened, I believe, is the big mistake is we combined the policymaking with the medical researchers. Mm-hmm. And the medical researchers were instead making policy de facto. Mm-hmm. And that creates a whole litany of problems. Um, I wrote an, uh, I mean, I did a podcast with a gentleman who is the CEO of a genetic testing organization. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about that podcast, it's going to come out here shortly, um, was that we've gone beyond ancestry and macro disease analysis um, into human performance. Mm-hmm. What sports should you play or should your children play? How do you train for them? What, sup- what supplements should you take, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, now all of this is optional. And so it's in the, I get to choose category, but it kind of starts down the path that you're describing mm-hmm. here. Uh, and then I think you do have to say, you know, at what point do you, does uh, someone say it's actually hurting me, which is kind of what we're seeing in this uh, transgender issue with swimming right now. No doubt. Uh, where, you know, the transgender swimmer, and this is amazing why, why it's not so patent, patently obvious, where they're shattering records by 43, 48 seconds, not mm-hmm. milliseconds, but seconds, mm-hmm. which is unheard of in swimming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we, we do have to analyze this in a, in a different context. Um, so I'm going to go back and look at what we've unpacked here today. It's been a really rich conversation mm-hmm. as it always is with you, Jim. Thank you so much for that. Mm-hmm. But we've kind of looked at the hierarchy of things. We've looked at logic. We've looked at the limitations of our tools. Um, we've talked about the objective versus subjective truth issue. And we've talked about the manifestation of this when, in terms of healthcare, um, not only policy, but, uh, procedures and protocols and rights as well. Um, what, what is next for you? What, what comes after this? Mm. Well, thank you. The project I'm working on right now is tentatively titled, we'll see what it ultimately winds up being called, How to Be Persecuted. And um, the first little part of it will explain what you do to get persecuted in America, which is a lot of what the tsunami book is about. But on the other side of that, how do we respond biblically and historically to what we're describing today? What are the values we need to have in place? What are some best practices we can learn from our biblical ancestors as well as those across Christian history? One of the huge things that so worries me, Todd, right now about the place where we find ourselves is the degree to which we're objectifying the other as the enemy to which we're demonizing those on the other side of this, as though that senator that I referenced in that, uh, in that Senate Judiciary Committee is after me. Well, he's a practicing Catholic Christian. He and I just simply disagree 
over on the merits of whether this is a civil rights issue. If I knew what some white supremacist group that refused to do African-American weddings and wanted First Amendment protections, I would say that was wrong. He says that's exactly the same logic as regards same sex. That doesn't make him my enemy. We're taking an adversarial approach to the culture that is not biblical and it's damaging. So how do we do this? How do we speak the truth in love? How do we identify, articulate the issues as they exist, but then be beggars helping beggars find bread? How do we respond in a spirit of courageous compassion, in a spirit of humility and grace? How do we do that? So I was speaking about the tsunami book. I was asked to preach a sermon on a basis of the book a couple of weeks ago. And at one point I was making this point that we need to speak the truth and love that the other side is not the enemy. And a woman in the congregation spoke up. We Baptists aren't real used to that. At least we white Baptists aren't real used to that. I, I'd have to unfortunately admit. She said, no, they're no. I, I was saying they're not our enemy. She said, no, they're the victims. In a sense, she's really right about that. John Stone Street famously says, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. So let's not be elitist here. Let's not be better than we're all broken sexually. I'm just as temptable heterosexually as someone else might be homosexually. Let's come forward in the spirit of grace and let's learn how to be persecuted for righteousness sake in a way that honors God. So that's the project I'm working on right now. So the idea is um, we've gone from, I disagree with your idea or with your conclusion. We've left that position to you're a bad human being for thinking right. it. That's right. That's where our yeah. culture is. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of folk on my side of the fence find ourselves as well. I'm saved, you're lost, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell, I'm a believer, you're not, God's on my side, God's not on your side, a pox on your house, that kind of, of zero-sum sort of everything's a war, everything's a battle, let's go be culture warriors kind of psychology. Reminds me of a cartoon I once saw where back in the, in the Crusades, you've got a crusader on a horse with his spear at the neck of a Muslim laying on the ground, and the caption is the Muslim saying to the crusader, yes, I would love to hear about your Jesus. <laughs> You know, and that's where we think we find ourselves these days. So let's identify the issues. Let's not be naive about the moment where we find ourselves, but let's not respond in a culture warrior antagonism that actually just going to make it worse. Instead, let's do something in a way that glorifies God and demonstrates grace and compassion, compassionate courage. That's the challenge for me every day. And it's a challenge I think a lot of us are facing today. Well, it circles right back to the beginning of our conversation today, which is that is the only way to get something done where we can evolve uh, collectively as a community to come to better solutions is you actually have to listen to somebody else's point of view. Right. You have That's to actually true. understand it and, and have empathy for it and say, hey, they, they've gotten here, here somehow. And so there's some legitimacy to it. Uh, and then you have to want to get to a better solution. That's right. Exactly. Thank you so much. Exact three steps. Thank you so much for an absolutely wonderful, wonderful. uh, My privilege, my friend. It's always a joy. I, I hope that I stand in the shadow of Carmen LaBerge, who I'm sure is going to talk to you about this (laughs) if she hasn't already, and we'll do an infinitely better job. But uh, I'm, I'm humbled by her capabilities, but also very, very deeply grateful for you coming on and, and having a chat with me this morning. My great privilege. You and Carmen are two birds of a feather. And that's a high compliment to both of you. Hey, grateful well, sir, for you both. I, I was on with her last anyway. week. I'll be on with her next week. So grateful oh, for you. Give her my regards. All right. Take care. Thanks so much, Jim. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.